Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Coming up on Money Beat, we talk to Mark Travis, CEO of Intrepid Capital Management, about today's markets. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello and welcome, everybody. This is Steve Grosser. Paul is on vacation once again. I'm joined in the studio with Ben Eisen. And we have a special guest today, Mark Travis, who's president and CEO of Intrepid Capital Management. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Steve, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How's uh, New York been? Cold. Cold, yes. <laughs> it's lovely this time of year in North Florida. 75, clear, low humidity, and uh, very few clouds. You missed last week's uh, fun with the snowstorm. <laughs> I, I did not. <laughs> I can't drive in the snow, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually one of the things I was like, I, I, I lived down in Atlanta. And mm-hmm. the first day I moved down to Atlanta, there was an ice storm. And I was shocked at the number of pickups that were having trouble getting up the hills with, like, basically well, a sheet of ice. Well, I can tell you as a native of Jacksonville, Florida, and a, long, <laughs> and a long-suffering Jaguar fan, although Tom Coughlin has come back, so there's hope. The time that it snowed literally a quarter of an inch in Jacksonville, Florida, the place came to a grinding Riding halt. halt. <laughs> <laughs> Panic-stricken drivers <laughs> everywhere. Um First, I guess, like, right off the bat, can you just sort of talk to us about your kind of investing philosophy? Well, I think that what I try to do is in the Intrepid Capital Fund is try to generate an equity-type return with less than equity-type risk. And I do that through um, careful valuation work in equity where some people use the term intrinsic value, some people use the term private market value. We, we try to use conservative estimates of growth, generally in our case a higher discount rate uh, than maybe many of our peers, a lot of times double digit, um, and or an asset valuation where we try to mark all the assets in the business to the market to figure out what they'd be worth in liquidation. And can we buy those at a, a discount? Um, and couple that with kind of a short duration high yield debt. We, we typically don't lend more than about five, maybe seven years on occasion. And in those cases, in both cases, we're really looking for free cash flow generation in each business and then trying to put a multiple on it. So what would um, KKR or Carlisle or Apollo pay for this business if they would take it private? Or what would mm-hmm. two rational business people, where would it transact? Um, I'd have to say over the last few years, that's gotten harder and harder to execute. Um, you know, I've joked before that I like to th- buy things that people need and use, uh, beer, shoes, and underwear. Um, if you look over the 22-year history of our firm, uh, beer's probably been one of our bigger uh, alpha generators, uh, everything from Grolsch to Sam Adams Beer to Molson to Budweiser. Um, you know, so I think what's happened now that we have $17 trillion of kind of free money that's uh, across the globe, everything looks like a deal. And so, you know, you lower the discount rate in a, in a DCF model and you can get a heck of a lot higher price. We haven't drifted down as quote-unquote risk-free rates have come down. Um, so we're very much an absolute return-centric firm. There are not many of them. It's a very kind of painful place to make money uh, when um, you know, it, it appears easily, easy to make money. Uh, but what it does, and probably one of my favorite uh, Warren Buffett quotes is, 
when the tide goes out, you get to see who's swimming naked. Yeah, yeah. So believe it or not, you take a day like two days ago and the market's off 100 to 150 basis points, depending on which index, I actually made money in the Intrepid Capital Fund. But it's because we're not in the index. So, you know, we have what's called um, a high active share. Um, so we're almost entirely dissimilar to the index. But that's not really critical when the market's going up, but it does become critical when the market's going down. And we really haven't seen that in, you know, five and a half years, probably the back uh, summer and fall of uh, 11. Um, so for me, I, I want to protect and grow what's given to me, you know, kind of the first do no harm, the, the pledge the doctors take. Um, and um, I feel like if someone's deferred gratification, paid tax, and hands me capital, my job is first and foremost to protect it and grow it at a reasonable rate. But if you if you look at this fund over the last decade, it's outperformed the Russell 2000, and it's had, again, cash in the 10 to 15, 20% range, fixed income 25 to 35, and the equity has generally been somewhere between 45 to as high as 65, depending on what was going on in the market. But... It's not built with the index in mind. And um, so we'll see as we go forward. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, again, a painful way to try to make money, but I think it does protect capital and grow it over time. I, w- I wanted to get back before we start, we start talking about today's, like what's going on in today's market, and more to just the idea of there's been, a, you know, with the central banks easing across the world, mm-hmm. easy money policy. How did that impact your investing strategy um, the last, you know, I guess, eight years now? Well, you know, looking back on it, it it's easy to be money morning quarterback yeah, yeah. Um, on yourself, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I think that's the beauty and peril of being kind of mark to market before you go home every night. You get to see whether you added value or subtracted it, and it explains my growing uh, solar panel on the back <laughs> of my head. Um, you know, I think as if you think about it, the normalized 10-year Treasury rate is probably 5%, give or take. Well, today right. it's, it's a 240. Um, a lot of, of value-centric investors uh, take a spread to that 10-year. So as that risk-free rate drifted down, their discount rate lowered and allowed them to justify higher and higher prices. We took a very kind of an absolutist approach which said, look, if you're going to invest in a small-cap business, you've got liquidity risk. You've got all sorts of operational risk. You should demand a 12% discount rate in that DCF. So we stayed here as the market drifted down. Retrospectively, we could have stayed more invested, I think, if we'd have used a spread. And we might have done better uh, for our customers in doing so. Um, But you don't know those things until it's passed. So we we only take what we know today and try to, you know, move forward. Um, But – yeah, it's it's been really interesting. I, again, I contend when you've got uh, the VIX, you know, eleven or below, and you've got market multiples north of twenty, depending if you lose trailing or forecasted. I mean, today the Russell two thousand, a third of them lose money, and and frankly, if a business is losing money, unless there's some um, asset valuation that shows me it's materially mispriced, it's not a business I want to invest in. I mean, you go back to the to to the sell off that we had on Tuesday, and uh, sort of this beginning of the idea that maybe the tide is going out. I mean, do you expect more days like that on the horizon? Do you you know w- what do you expect the the future holds? Well, Ben, it's interesting that you mentioned that. If you really look at the, kind of the granularity of the indices, um, 
you know, the Trump bump was very beneficial, if you will, to the banking business. I mean, it's about a 30% rally in banking shares. That's typically not a business we've invested in. It's very hard to know what the loans are of Citigroup, you know, and, and how do you decipher that? And, and that's usually a much bigger cap equity than we would prefer. Um, and, and there's a fair amount of um, uh, banks in, built into the Russell 2000, smaller community-based ones. But the point I was going to make is, as of, you know, two days ago at the market close, you probably had the Russell 2000, which was perceived to benefit from all these tax law changes to domestic U.S. companies, actually negative year-to-date, coupled with a probably up 600 basis points S&P. So you had a dichotomy. We could argue internally in Intrepid that the S&P is priced relatively cheaper, not absolutely, but relatively cheaper than the Russell. Um, but I, I think a lot of it is – um, you know, we've had this uh, fiduciary rule that's kind of been bandied back and forth, um, kind of a uh, required justification for brokers and financial advisors to justify why they spend more than nine basis points. So it's kind of forcing money in as people try to prepare for this rule, whether it gets enacted or not. And so it's forcing more and more money, almost a momentum trade, into the biggest names in the index and creating that disparity. Um, Interestingly enough, gold is up higher than the equity indices year to date. Um, but, but again, I think you've got the Fed, um, who's at least announced so far they'll have a couple of moves this year to try to normalize rates. I think we're a long way from normal, <laughs> uh, in my opinion. Um, and again, a higher discount rate equals a lower present value of cash flow. So um, it's, it's going to be interesting. Um, who knows? Where do you think valuations are right now? I mean, is this sort of, you know, you've, you, I think, mentioned irrational exuberance. Um, do you think we're sort of back to that sort of a similar period in, of 1996? Well, I, I remember 1996, and I painfully remember 1998, 9. Um, believe it or not, I'm one of the few people that um, lost money in 1999 when most people thought you should have been up. 80%, which is probably what the NASDAQ was. The, the corollary to that is we actually made money in 2001 and two, where there was a disconnect with a lot of these smaller cap, higher quality businesses that made things, again, that people need and use. But everybody was so focused on those top 10 NASDAQ equity issues, those blew off. And the dot-coms did, but the, you know, the Gorman Rupp sewer pump maker in Ohio was cranking along with no debt and a 4% dividend, which you know, we owned at the time. So um, I think today the, the, the valuations are more broadly higher. You don't have this bifurcated market where people are ignoring the high-quality Gorman Rupp and all they want to own is you know, Snapchat. I think it's in general uh, higher uh, kind of universally. Um, so you know, let's take 20 times earnings or a 5% uh, high yield, which to me is an oxymoron for high-yield debt. Um, that's kind of what you're looking at if you take an earnings yield of a 20p multiple, just the inverse, and say, hey, you're going to get a 5%. So I think people are a little delusional as far as what they've seen over the last three years and trying to extrapolate that. If you go back uh, back to the end of the tech crash and say Jan 1 of 2000 to now, my guess is S&P's compounded at maybe 7. And you've had some 50% plus drawdowns in that early part of the 2001 and 2002, and then you had again from late 07 to early 09. 
I think that's a good place to take a break. We'll be right back with Mark Travis, CEO of Intrepid Capital Management. This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years. A lot has changed, but one thing that remains constant, including the different types of durable income and in portfolios, can help investors meet their goals. With expertise across income and alternatives, Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principle is possible. Love tech? Dig gadgets? Then make tech news briefing from the Wall Street Journal a part of your day. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, and welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcast and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now look for us on the Google Play Music app on your Android devices. Back here with Mark Travis, President and CEO of Intrepid Capital. One of the, the sort of questions we have is, do you think the market's got a, you know, we've been writing, I guess, Ben, ben has been <laughs> writing a lot about this. Um, do we get sort of, do the markets get ahead of itself with the, the sort of Trump trade and, you know, the hopes for, you know, deregulation and, you know, tax cuts um, and, you know, infrastructure spending, which were some of the big things. And, and are we now in a sort of risk of a pullback on that? Well, I, I wish I'd brought the uh, copy of the Intrepid Capital Funds webinar that we did in uh, probably late January or February, okay. where we we debunked a lot of those issues um, and, and showed, again, that valuation is probably the most primary concern that we have. Um, you know, I, I think you've gone from a, of a, of a, a more heavy-handed uh, central government to maybe a, a less heavy-handed central government. Um, whether that's good or bad is yet to be seen. Um, you know, I do think that we, in, in my personal opinion, kind of ladled on some regulatory burdens, kind of at the trough of our despair in '09, um, that made it harder for businesses to grow. I mean, when I look at the economy adding 250,000 jobs a year, frankly, I don't think that's enough to absorb the college graduate population uh, coming out looking for work. And so we've had kind of an anemic growth rate, but I think things like Dodd-Frank and others have placed a high burden on the, the small businesses of America. I, I liken it to kind of tying Gulliver up by the Lilliputians. You know, whether it's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, even the, some of the more restrictive parts of Obamacare, which I think will be retained if I had to guess. Um, who, who knows where that goes? But so – I think the the perception is all that's going to be wiped away instantly and, uh, you know, it's going to be the roaring 20s. That's fine. But, hey, prices were high already. Yeah. Credit spreads are tight. Equity prices are high. And they just got higher post, you know, n November 4th or 8th or whatever the day of the election was. So, um, you know, I, I could be perceived for uh, crying in my spilt milk because I didn't ride it up as hard as fast as maybe others. But, um, again – we're pretty much index agnostic and in looking at each uh, security on an individual basis. You know, no, but, oh, but, go ahead. Before you, uh, before the break, you you had mentioned uh, uh, the, the utility in Ohio. I can't I can't remember the name of it, but the 
the, the one that sort of lagged the market on the way up in the dot com boom, but but led the market on the way down. I mean, are there is there sort of a, a an equivalent to that kind of uh, uh, stock or asset uh, these days that, that that you are sort of looking at at the moment? You know, Ben, that's interesting and a very good question. And, and I use the analogy of two days ago uh, when the market's off 100, 150 base points and the capital fund was up nine. And it's really because I don't own many um, index uh, securities. Uh, but I had two that had uh, kind of takeout offers. One was called Dominion Diamond out of a lovely Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, Canada, which I don't think you want to be there today. <laughs> and the other is... Um, um, spotless group out of Australia that's kind of a, a building maintenance and painting company got an offer. Um, so, you know, with the team of six eagle-eyed analysts and intrepid capital funds, we turn over a lot of rocks and we try to focus where the market's inefficient, which is typically smaller cap equity. Occasionally you get some one-offs in, um, you know, bigger cap equity. I've owned Microsoft before. I've sold it in the mid-50s. I owned it for several years. Um, it's it's higher yet. Um, you know, you get some Vioxx litigation for Merck and you get a disconnect. But by and large, if I'm looking for a cash generative business, the way I think it works on Wall Street is if you need equity financing or debt financing, if you're Tesla, you need both. <laughs> um, you get an analyst. And if you get an analyst, you can get investment bankers, you get a roadshow, and you get people promoting the security. But if you're Gorman Rupp, who's a multi-generational business in Mansfield, Ohio, making sewer pumps, ubiquitous blue sewer pumps, and you have no debt in a $200 million market cap, and you generate enough free cash flow to pay your owners 4%, there's, it's like it's a tree falls in the woods, no one hears it. So we try to find that type of security, um, knowing over time if we're patient and, and the people allocate capital and have intelligently, we'll do okay. I mean, it, it seems like um, utilities maybe don't uh, have that same role uh, these days, given how much you know they've run up in in, in you know well, over well, the last years. Maybe they pulled back a little bit, but I just wonder: is there is there is there a specific sector that maybe is the sort of equivalent to the Gorman Rupp of 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 these days? Well, again, Gorman Rupp is not a utility. I mean, they're a manufacturer of mm. sewer pumps. So it's mm-hmm. not a, a you know Edison Electric with a, a bunch of electric right, customers. Right. So I tend to think that the way it's worked as we've had this rate suppression is you've gotten people that first moved out their maturity and, and extended their term trying to get yield. And then they've dribbled into the equity market trying to get yield. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they went from, you know, CDs to moderate, you know, moderate duration treasuries to longer duration to, to utilities to junk. And so I tend to think there's probably a lot of weak holders um, of some of those securities that maybe really shouldn't be in the capital markets. I mean, it, look, you guys have probably reported on the interest income that the rate suppression has taken from the senior populace yeah. that typically just was in bank security, you know, CDs, money markets, whatever. And um, I think a lot of that money flowed out into the capital markets. But today, I don't think of a sector as, um, uh, you know, in particular offering great value. But I will say that we we have to find things that people don't really don't like to find a disconnect today because for most part, everything is well liked. <laughs> 
I, I want to talk about bonds for a little bit. The, you know, the Fed has now raised rates in two of the last three meetings. Where do you see bond prices going um, this year? And, you know, what, what types of bonds are you investing in? Well, it's the same way we've always done it, which is um, a short duration bond. So duration is nothing more than the present value of the cash flows. So really what that tells an investor is if rates move against you 1% or 100 base points, how much of my capital will I lose? So, you know, if you're in a 30-year zero coupon bond, that's a very long duration instrument because you get no cash flow. Um, We're on the polar opposite end of that spectrum where – because we've got in this environment a five, six, or seven percent coupon, and a and a five-year piece of paper, um, we get our cash back fairly quickly. And because we want to know that they can pay us off of the term out of their free cash flows, we're not dependent on the refinancing window being open, which I think is critical. That hasn't been critical today, but believe me, when tra- when spreads. On high yield in November of '08, we're 2,100 basis points over. You you couldn't refinance. Yeah, <laughs> you know you were as you use a polite expression, SOL. Um, you know, so I think that um, we're just hitting kind of golf analogy chip shots, uh, very short as things start to normalize. But one of the questions I have for the Fed and politicians is: my contention is it, the Fed policy and rate suppression has allowed kind of the profligacy of our central government to persist. We've added a lot of debt. Well, you try to normalize rates back to that normal, you know, 10-year rate of 5 or 6 percent, they're going to start blowing up parts of the federal government that some people are going to think are critical. No, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing the amount that, you know, the government pays – um, to you know, to finance itself essentially right. on that debt hasn't moved a great deal since 1997, and that's because interest rates have come down so far. That could change quite dramatically. Well, well start rising. one thing that I was in, and there's others, but one thing that I was in disagreement with the prior administration was that they were rolling their debt forward to take advantage of that short-term rate. Yeah. Given the same circumstance, the CFO of Coca-Cola or or uh, P&G would have extended that to as long as the market would lend him to. Interestingly enough, the new uh, Secretary of Treasury, Munchen, yeah. both, is, both Gary Cohn and Munchen are now talking about yeah. going out and trying to take it from short out to 50 or 100 year yeah. debt. I mean, look, I think it's been very tough for somebody with liabilities they got to match off in the bond market, like a life insurance company to find the, the, the securities they need. And my guess is if they were to offer that security, they, they'd be bought, bought up by the MetLife's and Northwestern Mutuals of the world. And you've seen that like in Europe, I think both Ireland and Austria issued you know, uh, debt in the 50 to above uh, category. Right, right. So it, it's, um, it'll be interesting to see if we really do get three increases and what the bond market does. Um, you know, I think the most interesting part about what I do is, and if you really look about back over the 32 years I've been doing what I do, it's always a surprise. You and I can sit here today in, in New York and think, well, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> it never seems to happen way, way, the way you expect it. Um, you know, so 
Um, we'll we'll see where the cracks occur. I, mean, I, you, you've, I mean, I think it's been thirty years. People have said bond prices have to be going up. Right, <laughs> right. They they really haven't. In, um, you know, and they're still. I mean, like people are expecting them to continue going up. Um, and after the Fed, they pulled back again. Right. I mean, yeah, the the ten year ran up to probably two sixty, yeah. sixty five, seventy maybe, and now it's back in the two forty. I mean, you can make a, a great case in this country uh, demographically that. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of demand. There's not a lot of inherent drivers of inflation. A guy like me could say, well, they're understating inflation. I'm paying NYU tuition for a 19-year-old down the street. And trust me, they like to jack up the price. Um, you know, but – and maybe health care. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I think for us it's a kind of a contained view. I've lent money to Regis. I get it back on May – of 20, and here their cash flows, and they're doing this many haircuts across the country. I think that's probably a good place to end it. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. This has been Steve Grosser with Ben Eisen. We'll see you next time. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.